Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky back from our holiday break where we pretended it was a normal holiday and people went places. Uh, we didn't. We stayed right here, but we took a week off anyway. Um, but we're back this week, and we're really excited to start things off. This is going to be a super fun show. Allison Martino, she's the founder of Vintage Los Angeles. She's here as well on Spectrum on Spectrum News, Wednesdays at 9 o'clock on the SoCal scene. Um, she, how do you describe yourself and what you do, Allison? Because I think you can do it better than I can. I don't know. I've been called the DeLorean of the internet. (laughs) um, I guess I can really tap into the memory banks. Basically, I present a lot of history in in our city and and try to make it fun and interactive. And I think what's great about the internet and and having social platforms is hearing everybody else's stories growing up here. So it's not all about me. (laughs) Do you you consider yourself like like a formal historian of Los Angeles? I think I've become one. I I don't think I started out that way. I just was a girl from LA that wanted to start a page about Los Angeles because so much of it is, you know, there's so much history that's lost. And I think when you grow up here, you miss places that you used to play as a kid. You know, there used to be an amusement park where the Beverly Center is. Some people don't realize that, that have moved here the last 20, 30 years. So I created this forum on Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> okay, okay, I've lived here 30 years. I didn't know that. Yeah. I actually did not know that. There was a full Ferris wheel, bumper cars, haunted house, the whole thing, at, right where the Beverly Center was. It was where all the divorced dads took their kids. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my parents stayed married. I didn't go as much as I wanted to. It closed in seven <laughs> Okay, I was three. I had like whole movies of myself there. But it was there. And there's like Facebook pages about it and people, you know, birthday parties. And like I said, the divorced dads. And it was a place to go. It's been in a lot of movies. But places like that have now become on my Vintage LA page where people can learn about something they never knew about and kind of wish that it was still there. I curse your parents and their happy relationship. (laughs) (laughs) How did you find Vintage LA? Um, I think just over Twitter. I, I think I saw somebody, you know, uh, probably multiple people retweet uh, things from your account at Allison Martino. Right. And I started just checking it out, thinking it was cool. And then one of us, I don't remember which one of us, decided to follow you. And then we just saw there was more really cool stuff and, you know, re- read some of the things that you've written and things like that. And just was like, wow, th- for people that love L.A., you're a very cool follow. And I, I guess that's all, I mean, it's sort of how we find out everything in, in today's day and age. You, you learn it one way or another over the internet. And, you know, like with the internet, you just hope it's accurate. Thankfully, in your case, it is. Thanks. I don't think I could have gotten this, I, I guess, really the social part of it, the social media part of it is such a big part of it. Because I'll start a conversation or, or, or show a photo like of Kitty Land. And then within an hour, there's 40, 50, 100, 150 comments where everyone shares their stories there. So I get to learn through my followers, which I don't like to call them followers, just people that love LA. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not a cult. I mean, that is the formal name of it. They're, they're followers. They're, they're, you have not decreed them your followers. You don't expect anything of them. Right. You don't charge them. You know. You know. You don't. You don't. You require access to their bank accounts or anything like that. It's funny because a lot of people didn't even know I was who I was for about five years. You know, I was doing this like, who's the, the you know, behind the curtain. And I was like the Oz, Loser of Oz. 
nobody knew who I was behind vintage LA. I never said my name. I never showed my picture. I thought they were, thought I was a retired professor in Florida or something. <laughs> so I started saying like, no, I really lived here. I really am a human being and started telling stories about growing up here. And I think that's when it, it, it took off. Like, Oh, she's a real person. So wh where in LA did you grow up to, to begin this? Well, I was born at Cedars in Hollywood. And then my dad moved to, from Philadelphia to Beverly Hills in 68. So I grew up there my whole life. And okay. so many changes in that, in that town, that's for sure. It wasn't Rodeo Drive when I was growing up there. It was more of, a, of like a village. So, uh, yeah, and, I, and now I live in West Hollywood, which I love. Right. So, so like, wh when, I guess, was the point when you started realizing you had a real connection to L.A.? And then I guess where's the point from there where you decide, okay, I have this connection. I need to do something with it. That's a good question. I think it comes from, I used to be a producer at E! Entertainment TV about 25 years ago. And I produced the show called Mysteries and Scandals. Mm -hmm. All about, I remember that. You know, the golden, you know, with AJ Benza, it was like the flip side of Hollywood, the, dark, the guy telling stories in a dark alley. And it was very Hollywood Babylon. And I started to get a connection to the people I was interviewing. Um, I was interviewing like a lot of the old Hollywood types and um, I got it was like them. Tell me about Marilyn Monroe, which I'm fascinated by, but to find out where the areas that she lived in and how, how much it changed and some of the homes that they lived in had been demolished and so much of the history had been lost. So I started collecting photographs for that show and I, you know, I had a stack of pictures about this big, about old LA, put them on Facebook, started this page, Vintage LA. It took off. And like I said, through the last 10 years, I've really learned even more from my followers. But I think that I love this town. It's, it's I'll never live anywhere else. It is heartbreaking to see so much of my past demolished and destroyed <laughs> and businesses going out of business and, you know, all these new businesses taking over little businesses. Next thing you know, the restaurant you grew up in is gone and it's a mini mall. And then there's a Walgreens now and it's a CVS. And I mean, I, I used to live by a roller skating rink that was there for, you know, 50 years. And now it's a CVS. So I want to keep telling stories. I also think for developers that might watch my page or look at my page, we can actually incorporate some of these buildings into new developments mm -hmm. as well. We don't have to knock everything down. It's interesting, you know, and we will probably we can talk about this in a little bit because I actually lived in West Hollywood before, uh, you know, a couple of places ago in an, in a in a building that was from 1913 or something that was torn down. Um, so it was really sad. Um, but and it is it's not even that it was torn down. It's what they replaced it with, which is just a really ugly building. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in what. Because when people think about vintage LA, like you can think about, you know, the 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 the, the kind of the the scenery and the imagery that's painted in LA Confidential. You can think of Chinatown. You could think of, um, you know, uh, Fast Big Times Street. at Ridgemont High. You know, there's so many different things that you can think about when you think about the the history of Los Angeles and what the city looks like. And how do you? kind of break that down like what makes something in la vintage and worthy of that kind of that that classification anything before cell phones to me is vintage <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like I'll, I'll post a photo from 1975 of people crossing the street and maybe someone's looking down and it's like wait are they on their phone oh no they're not on their phone 
we're so used now of seeing people with this and being programmed into this that, because that's a good question. People said, well, what, what's the cutoff? What's vintage? How, when does it start? Is it the 40s? Is it the 50s? Like, no, right before the, right before the new you know, 2000s. <laughs> I mean, if you watch Friends, I'm not saying Friends is vintage, but they don't have cell phones yet. So yeah. it isn't an interesting show to watch. Like, they're, it's so modern and it's, it's so new, but no cell phones. So like the year in the 80s, like Michael Douglas in Wall Street with the brick portable phone. That that could still qualify as vintage in terms of the era. James Bond. But you yeah. Know, <laughs> like, yeah, those were those were amazing. You have a phone in your car. I mean, you know, if somebody I knew had one in their car in the 80s was just cool. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. You knew that guy was a big deal. Like I remember my best my best friend growing up, his dad had the first phone. In his car, he, he was an art dealer, and, and I guess you know the, you have. There are a lot of calls in that business that simply can't wait. And I remember the first time he got a call in that car, it blew my mind. I was just like, "How do I, how do you do this?" It, it was unbelievable. Amazing, and, and that is amazing. And so, people that maybe are on vintage LA and they're younger, and they see photos of, "Wow, they don't have phones, they don't have computers." They well, we seem to get along just fine. <laughs> I, I will say I do not know how anybody found anything. Like I, I, I get it. We had Thomas guides and and stuff like that, and the Thomas guide goes way back. But there's, I'm sorry, there like it's like if you're trying to get up in these little like places up in the hills or well, I don't know how anybody did that without Google Maps. I really don't. That's it's mind boggling to me. You know, we had the answering like answering machine at home. You know, it's like. You would go out all day and not know who called you till you got home. Imagine that. Yeah, I, I you know, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, something like FOMO has existed forever, right. but I never really thought about like just how much FOMO has been, you know, ratcheted up in today's world where it feels like it should be impossible to miss anything. <laughs> so if you miss something like what the hell is the matter with you? Like you you must be some type of either social leper or just completely out of it if you manage to miss something because it it is basically impossible to not be able to get a hold of people now. And then they get offended when you don't get back to. But you know, as a, I grew up in the you know seventies, I was a kid. In the eighties was my high schools. Uh, you know, like I said, I, we got along fine. I, I thought it was you know I, I I could live if I didn't know who called me till I got home. It was almost exciting to see who called. Oh, nobody called. Oh, somebody called. You know, <laughs> now it's like oh my god, I, I have five texts. I got to you know return them right away, or I you know like I'm ignoring somebody. So I think that that reaction, like vintage LA, I think people have a, a, almost an emotional reaction to seeing life simpler, as people say, a, a different you know going to the movies and waiting in line and. You know, buying tickets ahead of time, not getting them on the internet. I mean, I had to go to Ticketmaster and buy my tickets, you know, and hopefully get good seats or, you know. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up um, because you wrote a piece um, a little while ago that um, it can be found, I believe, on go to Vintage uh, Los Angeles and then there's a link to your own personal blog. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a piece about uh, the old Tower Records. Right. And in part talking with uh, Colin Hanks, who actually did a documentary about it, which oddly enough, Brian and I talked with him uh, mm -hmm. about it a long time ago. But what, what you're talking about now, it, there's a difference in the way we consume entertainment now. And, you know, I think like, for example, with music, there's a big difference between taking it in digitally. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of choices and convenience there and you can store a lot more and there's less clutter. 
but it's not the same thing as going inside a record store, going through all the different aisles, having to sift through it. Stuff is out of order, so you may have to look harder. But also, too, that communal experience of seeing, like literally seeing what what other people are yeah. checking out. And, and you may get influenced by just seeing somebody in a different aisle. And it's just, I'm, it's different. That's right. I mean, most of my my memories are of growing up here. A lot of them were at Tower Records. And I didn't grow up too far from there. But I knew all their names. I knew everybody that worked there. They knew what I liked. You'd spend hours in there. The parking lot was a scene, you know, just to pull your car in there. But I mean, I, I'm a record person. I collected records my whole life. I, that was the way I got records. I remember when CDs came out, I'm like, oh, I like records better. But um, just opening them up, reading the notes, seeing there's a poster inside. I, I mean, to have those, I like to touch things. I don't know. I just, yeah. you know, I, I imagine my entire collection is on my phone. It doesn't make any sense to me. But there's something different. There's something different about that experience. I mean, even if you're talking about, you know, something like a DVD versus a digital download, you know, they're just what you find by popping open that case right. and, you know, on the, on the other side of the cover, or like you mentioned, the liner notes with yeah. albums or e you know, even CDs, there's just, there's that physical experience. I think of taking in that information is different than learning it digitally. And don't you think that when you put on an album, or even a CD, I listened to the beginning to the end. So I knew what track four was and I knew what track six was. I knew these, since this has happened and everything is digital and I buy the songs I want, I don't know where it lays in a record and I don't know how the whole experience of that record is. So I don't know how, how if everyone's buying the full record today, I don't know. No, it's no is the is the short and most most of the time is is the answer. It's, it's completely changed touring. It's completely changed how people record and all that. But one one of the things that that I'm interested in, like in that is like there is that sort of sense of of nostalgia and difference and things like that. When when people, what do you think makes that particularly strong about Los Angeles? Because it's not just people who live here. Um, it's also people who don't and have this sort of conception of what LA is and whatever, it, you know, and, and I assume so much of that is driven by Hollywood, but well, yeah. is, is it just that simple that people look at what they see in TV and movies and well, I think build it around that? Maybe I'm a good, I can answer that by saying I did not call my page vintage Hollywood for a reason because mm -hmm. I didn't want everyone to think all I was going to do was post about movie stars and that which is great and I love that, but I wanted my page to be more about people's experiences in LA and growing up here. Like we're more than palm trees and water in Hollywood. There's incredible architecture here. You know, it's a car culture for sure. Oh yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that there's so much to learn about LA, so many areas of LA to learn, Silver Lake to the beach, to the mountains. It, it, and then it's, it's just, a, I've grown here, up here my whole life and there's still areas I don't know about. Um, so I think when you, it's, it's LA and it's people's LA and what they, why they want to live here is great is a great question. I've asked that to many people on my page that are visit from Australia or Japan. What do you love about Hollywood? Well, let's face it, you go to Hollywood and there's not a lot to see there as much as there was. So I hope that my page can kind of give you an example. You can go to Santa Monica, you can see architecture, you can go to, um, you know, there's a lot of places I'm still learning about. But I think architecture, I hope, is more appreciated as time goes on. I think Instagram is helping with that. People like to take pictures of things and be artistic. And I'm seeing more buildings being appreciated, which I think is fascinating. 
Is there a commonality to some of the responses you get in terms of, you know, asking different people why they want to live in L.A. or why they think they would want to live in L.A.? I mean, I think it's still I mean, I think it's weather, it's palm trees, it's, it's, it is all that. But there's a mystique here, I think. It's the dream. You know, it is like the ultimate dream. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to go to L.A. I'm going to make that happen. And it just drives you. You know, and I and I've seen people come here and they've been driven and maybe it didn't happen. They still didn't want to leave. So it's not the town that totally knocks you down unless you just say, I'm done, I'm leaving. But so many people I know have been here and changed careers, you know, have tried something different. And it's such a big town. So there's a lot of people to meet. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, obviously you had mentioned that there's more to what you uh keep history of than just Hollywood, even though we do plan on discussing some of that. And for people who are unaware, your father was a singer and an actor. He was Johnny Fontaine in The Godfather. We have questions. Um, <laughs> we, he also, too, was friends with Tommy Lasorda. And we yeah. want to get into that. We Good know that we, have, we have pictures. Yes, we have a lot of Dodger fans uh, who uh, watch this show. But when you had mentioned before that there is more to L.A. history than just Hollywood, is there an area in L.A., and I mean, you can think about this broadly, like it doesn't have to be like L.A. proper, but just anywhere that someone might say to, if they were in Connecticut and somebody asked them, where do you live? They would say Los Angeles. Is there an area of L.A. that you think has either underappreciated or underrated history? Um, Silver-like, for sure, but I think it's getting more attention. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of my friends are moving out there, and a lot of people want to live there, and it's very... Um, I don't like to say trendy, but it's it's that more more of a like a hip a hipper kind that's of. That's a good no. That's a good word for it for you sure. Know, there's water out there, and there's 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 you know that's actually quite beautiful. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. I think they think it's Sunset Boulevard or PCH, the Malibu, absolutely gorgeous, of course. But there's other areas too. Is, is there is, is there a history though to Silver Lake that you think people aren't aware of? Sure, the homes are really old. You know, there, there's a lot of old Hollywood houses out in Los Feliz that are just as big as these homes out, you know, on the west side. Um, and they're old Hollywood. And I, I, I prefer the older Hollywood homes, the, mm -hmm. the houses that were built in the 20s and the 30s. I mean, I love mid-century homes, too, in certain areas, Palm Springs. It's a, you know, it calls for the area, I think, sometimes. Um, so there's always something to discover. Downtown Broadway is amazing. Uh, to see all those old theater marquees. You know, a lot of people didn't realize that there was a booming, bustling Hollywood in downtown with all these. Down, yeah, downtown is fascinating to me because when I moved here, like nobody ever went down. There was no reason really to go downtown. But in terms of architecture and like getting a feel for what the city might have looked like, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, downtown is one of the best places you can find. Like it, it is yeah. as unchanged as I think anywhere you can find. And they're all there, you know, and I think that's what's amazing. Is, you know, the Chinese theater, it's been there for, oh, my God. And but that there's a theater that is older than that 1917, like the Million Dollar Theater. And it's still standing. And if you go down Broadway till that, you know, Olympic, that you'll see the Globe Theater and, the, and the, the, the Los Angeles Theater. And they're absolutely stunning. And they've been, a lot of them have been restored. Uh, unfortunately, we're going through the COVID now, but uh, they're open. And they have events there. Who knew? I never, we never went downtown. downtown. No. I, I, a time thing for businessmen and, and stuff like that. And now 
we're all going to get. Oh, it, it, I'm, I'm sad that the Pacific Dining Car just closed because that was. Yeah, oh, yeah, and I, I want to. We definitely want to talk a lot about food because well, I do think food and restaurants play yeah. a really yeah. L A. I think action. We we've talked about this with a couple of uh, food writers who've been on with us, uh, Farley Elliott um, among others, about how L A. over the last maybe ten or so years has really started to get its due as a food city. Yeah. But talking about downtown, it, it's interesting. I, I think downtown is an interesting example of trying to find balance in terms of preserving history, but also changing an area, at least arguably for the better. Because, I mean, when, when I, you know, like Brian mentioned, I've been here longer than Brian. There was nothing yeah. in downtown at all. And I, and I went to USC, so I was really near it. I, there, other than going to like the pantry, or yeah. a couple of bars or, you know, to be honest, people looking to score drugs like there was nothing in downtown. It's obviously for the better that it's been revitalized. It's offered people opportunities in terms of living, employment, all these different things. But there does come a price in terms of what gets taken down, what gets developed. Where do you sort of see the balance in terms of trying to preserve history for the sake of history? Versus under like sort of understanding things that just evolve. Like, sort of like the difference between needed. old something that's old isn't necessarily worth preserving, but <laughs> or you are. sort of have to make hard choices. Yeah. Well, well I want everything preserved, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking you because I know that would be your urge. Well, obviously, it all can't be preserved, but a place like Coles, you know, yes, stuff like that, they have history. They're they're a hundred years, you know. They're I mean. Musso and Frank, you know, yeah. years last year. This is LA. Restaurants don't survive that long. They don't no. go 100 years. You know, in Chicago, New York, they do. They don't, that doesn't happen here. So if you get a handful, five or six places that, that they even reached 50 years, 75 years, 100 years, landmark that place because it's obviously done well for 100 years. But there's so many things that go into it. You know, is it still, um, are people still going? You know, does it does it need up updating? Uh, should it be preserved? Is it should it be a landmark? Should it be incorporated into something else? Keep the structure. There's so many ways. Right. You know? Is the food still good? Like you know, that's the thing too. Is like well, one of the things that's so interesting about restaurants is like they you can develop this sort of culture and like a patina kind of grows on on a place that makes the place better than the food, you know, almost. And like you, you see these places where like, it's almost like a slow bleed and a slow decline. So you, you have to do two things at once with, with restaurants. And that makes it so complicated. It seems like a lot of places go and they have their moments and then they don't, and then they do and they mm -hmm. don't, you know? And I think like with Musso's, it's a perfect example. I mean, booming last year, they've never done business like that. And, um, you know, we're talking about the oldest restaurant in Hollywood. I'm sure that, you know, Tarantino's movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really helped that. It's the opening setting, the first scene, you know, they're in the sun Frank, and they celebrated 100. And the great thing about social media is you're able to get that information out there. And maybe people didn't know about this 100-year-old restaurant, and now they want to check it out. And I, I feel for them on, on what's happening right now, and they had to close down. And I am worried about the future of a lot of these, mm -hmm. the historical places. And it, there needs to be something called a legacy business in place where if you've reached a certain amount of years in, in this business, in the restaurant business, that they should be helped. <laughs> and, you know, and, and maybe maybe landmarked and 
it's it's scary because you know and also they change owners sometimes and you don't know if the new owner is really going to appreciate what they had well you've um, you've actually for people who are unaware you you've formally gotten places uh that sort of status like historical status that ends up keeping them alive like you you've gotten them designated as i guess historical landmark i mean i i'm a crusader of that you know i like to go on those campaigns to help save the oldest coffee shop or you know it i i think that again with social media getting the word out there if you need signatures what better way to get them than, than this way and and then and then if, you know you, you take it to a judge and they look at it and they go wow I have no idea that you know five five thousand people in the neighborhood want this place saved they don't want to see bs there so there's always let's i mean the balance is hard because there, like again there's not a lot of restaurants that have survived that long jj's is another great place on the other yes. You know, a place that I love, and, and and luckily they can do some outdoor dining. Thank God for some of these places, or I'm worried they'll shut down. I work with Dantana's, which is right oh, in Chicago. Best you know, Caesar in this city. Oh, I love Dantana's. <laughs> well, we'll go one night, and I I I'm been doing their social for about. Seven You're years. the greatest guest we've ever had, Allison. I just want you to. <laughs> Would know. you like to come back tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and by tomorrow, we mean any night, any night you want, until we go to Dantana's. Absolutely. <laughs> that happen but you know i'm trying right now to get them landmarked with the city because i you know here's a restaurant that's been around since 1964 mm -hmm. it's small we love it because it's small there's not a lot of booths it's really tight but people love going in there well now with covid nobody's going to be shoulder to shoulder for a while so they had to figure out an area that to, that you could sit outside you know and so they took the driveway or they took some of the alley i mean you're just it's tart it's 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 Heroic to see all the creativity that's going into trying to save a business like that. And then you go, wait, but what if, you know, if they don't own the property and somebody decides to say, you know what, this isn't really cutting it for me. I don't know if you can make your rent. Uh, we're going to do one of those multiplex things, knock it down, make it a Walgreens. You know what I'm saying? And, sure. And so, it's, it's, this is one of the things that, you know, we've talked about this with, with Andy mentioned with, with Farley Elliott. We talked about it with Gustavo Ariano uh, from the, from the LA times. Like, the, the, the cross-section of things that could be lost right. business-wise in the pandemic, whether it's restaurants, whether it's, you know, little shops and boutiques that have been around for a long time, or, 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 or even if they're relatively new, have a, have a, 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 a mission of being connected to the city and, and, and selling things that are, are, whatever it might be so much of those little things, because like you say, the city is so much more than, Hollywood, and it's so much, and it's a hardworking town. I worry about the character of yes of, of LA, some of the kooky architecture, things that made it different. You know, right roadside eateries and places like that are just part of the what makes a neighborhood. And it's sort of like when you know, if you were growing up and and possibly your house was sold or you saw your house get demolished, you have a you have a it breaks your heart. You know, it has foundation. It is who you are because of where you grew up and. I feel like that around LA when I see something go down that that's my part of, you know, what we grew up around and that's the feeling I get. But I always used to worry about developers coming in or I don't know, maybe the, a, a lease can't be renewed. Mm -hmm. I never thought a, a, a COVID would come in and now that's the one that's really right. the most worrisome. 
Well, you know, it's funny actually, and I and I never really thought about it in these terms until we're just having this conversation. But you know, our audience has a lot of Laker fans, mm-hmm. and one thing I I know that they really appreciate about the Lakers is that they are family owned, and you know, I mean, they've been an outwardly dysfunctional family, you know, in terms of the ownership, and it's had its drama, and thankfully, it's in a very good place right now with Jeannie Buss, you know, at the helm. But either way, it's like they they know that this family is dedicated to the Lakers, like in the same way that you have that individual ownership in certain places that, you know, want to be the stewards of this restaurant uh, or this store or whatever for as long as they can. Like and that's it, it adds to the character of, you know, whatever institution it is. But it also, I think, adds to a security for the customer base or the fans or, or whatever you want to call it. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm an old school sort of throwback soul, but when I walk into a restaurant that I've been going to for 30 years or since I was a kid and the maitre d' says, hey, Allison, got your favorite table over here, your favorite drinks coming up. I love this. I, I miss that. When I'm, when I'm traveling and, uh, and you don't know anyone and you're, even if you're in Europe and there's a let, you come back to LA and I walk through the doors of a familiar restaurant and I feel like I'm home, just as much as I'm walking through my front door. So this is a scary time in, in the sense of, are we, what, what's gonna look like when we come out of it? Yeah, I mean, this is, is, I mentioned small businesses and like this is one. And if, if you're an LA person who lives, you know, probably on the West side, you know, if you, and you have kids, you probably know about Harry Harris. And that we, we have a, a 10 year old, an eight year old and a two year old. and for fun, we took the two-year-old to get her first pair of shoes at Harry Harris, and we didn't realize at the time. Kind of got in right before the the end because it closed. And that that that's a shoe store that's been in Beverly Hills for like I don't know a thousand years. For, forever, I mean, since yeah. maybe the late fifties. Um, and the owner passed away suddenly, mm-hmm. not from, you know just 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 an unfortunate. Sure. And, you know, the next thing I knew, I, I saw on their Instagram, they were closing. And I was like, you know, that's the, what I'm talking about, growing up with a, with a shoe store like that. I'd walk in and say, hey, they knew, you know, what did she grow up? <laughs> and nothing changed in that place. They still had the fiberglass chairs and they never updated it. No, and they even they, even your first picture, like your your first pair of shoes picture is a Polaroid that so looks like it was taken in 1983. So I mean, like everything about it, um, and we have the picture sitting on the side of our refrigerator right now. And it's it's you know I didn't realize it at the time, but it's this um you know this little piece of of LA. So you this this was something you were kind enough to send us, and as we're sort of talking about restaurants and people and like the feel. So this is uh, your dad. Uh, Al and Tommy Lasorda, who I think most uh, Dodger fans would recognize here, and of course, it's there are probably I don't know two or three thousand restaurants <laughs> with pictures of Tommy Lasorda uh, in them from from the uh, from that era, just because he was a noted eater. Um, but when one of the things I think is so great about these places is the kind of this feeling of people who were in there, and this is Chasen's. Um, how how important is sort of the storytelling of the people who would gather at a place like Chasen's, a place like Dantana's, or some of these other classic restaurants in terms of creating this this history of LA? Yeah, it's really funny. I 
I wish I could put a tape recorder on some of these you know, back then. In fact, I, I used to do it when I was younger, but to just hear the conversations around a red leather booth where everyone's sort of cozed in there and cozy. And again, you know the waiters and you know everybody and you feel comfortable and a couple drinks in and the, the stories that come out. And it wasn't so much about today's news so much when they would talk. They would talk about things from current events from the past. Uh, they would bond on being, they were both from Philadelphia, dad and Tommy, so, and they loved food. <laughs> both Italian, you know? Yeah. Well, that's already a, a bond right there. Uh, but I miss, I miss them. I miss them together and I miss, and I miss places like that where they felt comfortable to go and, 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 and talk. Now I think they go more to, to people's homes. I mean, there's not, like I said, there's not a lot of, like a chastens around. Yes, one Frank for sure, but. That's a, that, is that another sort of casualty of social media, do you think? Because I, I agree with you. I, you know, like I said, I, we were telling this story before, and this is even before really cell phones and stuff like that. But my, when I first moved to LA, I was surprised at like what actual Hollywood looked like. It was before the sort of the revitalization of so much of it. And my friends would come out and they'd visit and they'd be like, take me to Hollywood. I'd be like, okay. And they'd get there and be like, really? This is it? And, and, um, they expected celebrities just to be kind of out there walking around like you could take a picture with Mickey at Disneyland. Um, and, and, but you would still run in, I ran into, or you would see celebrities out more than this is the late nineties, early two thousands than you do now. It just, is that, is that a, a, a consequence? Do you think of cell phone cameras everywhere and social media and things like that? Well, and you talking about like some of the old, like the older celebrities. I mean, I think TMZ and the, and the photographer, the, the paparazzi in front of the places, I never grew up seeing that. Mm -hmm. I, I remember, you know, going to a couple parties at Chasen's where Liz Taylor would be inside, but I never saw the madness of what it is today, where they walk out and 5,000 cameras are on them. And I, it feels, I couldn't imagine that. For And I think today, that like I, they go out, they get they get one bad photo and, and it gets published. So, yeah. And that's like they're looking for the bad picture. I don't think they're really looking. And there was just a different class, I think, when I was growing up in the older Hollywood. And I think that even, if you want to call them paparazzis, had a little more respect for them. They would call them Mr. or Mrs. And it's now just like, oh, and it's, and it's changed so much in, the, in that sense. Well, I, I mean, this is me just spitballing. I don't know if this is accurate or not. But just in thinking about the difference then versus now, if you don't have as many outlets to compete with and you don't have as many photographers there, there doesn't there doesn't come this frenzy of trying to find the photo that will stand out the most, you know, ver uh, between 100 of them. And very often that has to be the worst one or the one that looks, you know, either most disparaging or the stars up to no good or something like that. You, you could develop a bit more of, I, I think, sort of a familial familial might be too strong but less of an adversarial relationship like you hear about this in sports where you know the the media used to travel by train with the yankees and they would just sit talking with babe ruth yeah. for like three hours on a train <laughs> <laughs> and like you know obviously these reporters sat on a lot of dirt that they knew that's right but but they also recognized the value in being able to have that type of relationship and all of these people end up in one way or another put on some type of pedestal. It's more just what you want to do with it 
And maybe the nature of that has just changed more. I think the nature of definitely changed. I think that reporters back then, we called them reporters, that <laughs> I think they were fans of, of who they were taking photos of and wanted to have a good relationship and not be. Today, it's like, you know, sometimes would a celebrity of the day or an influencer or whatever will call their publicist and say, I'm going to let them know. So I'm smothered with, you know, and, and well, social media too, I think has removed a lot of mystique from celebrity in general. Like, you know, the, the movie being John Malkovich, you know, where the attraction is you pay money to spend, you know, five minutes or whatever, how long it is inside John Malkovich's head. And you see what John Malkovich's life is like. Something like that wouldn't work now because on social media, they give it all away for free. That's right. And, you know, like there's there's a lot of, I mean, I this is something actually I, I've talked about a lot with my friends. I, I've written about it before, but like movie stars, like the nature of being a movie star mm -hmm. is different now mm -hmm. than what it used to be. It's a lot more about being a vehicle for IP as opposed to the nature of being that star himself like that like it's it's interesting that leonardo dicaprio will will hopefully get into some stuff with once upon a time in hollywood because you've written about it but he's he's one of the few stars out there that right. isn't really associated with some type of ip like right. it's it's pretty rare right. like even even really good very respected actors very talented have been attached to some type of marvel movie or harry potter or Whatever, I mean, Lord knows I'm trying. <laughs> and like, I, I don't, it, it's not necessarily bad or good, even if I personally don't enjoy it as much, but it's definitely different. And I, I think, I think that's all changed. The franchise and the whole thing. And you're right. I think it's, it's like, I, I've been watching old reruns of Carson lately, which, you know, I absolutely love, but I see it differently now than I did when I was younger and watched it. And it's really fun to go back and watch it or even the Dick Cavett interviews, because when the movie stars back then really came on, like a Brando or a Betty Davis, they didn't come on to sell anything. They came on because yeah. they were interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, Truman Capote could come on and just read a phone book, and it was... Right, Carson liked them. They were interesting people that Carson liked. You had these sort of like char characters, you know, or characters, and, and we don't really have those anymore. Now they're social media influencers, but are they funny? And are they... I don't like to say they're not talented, but what they're known for something else and it's followers or, you know, and it's, it's I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm like, what would Natalie would have an Instagram account today? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's just a different thing. And I think they had publicists then they got to filter out what they wanted to get out there. But today it's, they want everything out there. Yeah. It's, it's different. Yeah. So, Privacy oh, is the currency that doesn't really exist or it's not coveted in the way that it used to be. Like, you know, part of being a movie star used to be the mystique and sort of the mysterious about mysteriousness about it. And there would be sort of a, a few layers of distance between the fans and the star. Right. And there were certain there were certain elements about them that made them feel more more unknowable. Right. And that that distance has been removed. And again, you can. You could argue that it's great that there's more direct interaction between right. fans and celebrities, but it is very different. Well, it's different in the sense, I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s, so let's just say, you know, I, I loved Duran Duran growing up, or Billy Idol, those kind of things, see them in concert. I couldn't just turn on my YouTube channel or put on 
their Instagram accounts and get to see all this incredible performances in front of me on a screen. I had to actually see them live. I'm glad I did, you know, back then. I'm still going to concerts, of course, but today there's a lot coming at us, a lot of me, a lot of entertainment. And it was just different when I grew up. And if you didn't know a lot about a celebrity, you had to dig for it. And now it's it's like it's it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> so Andy mentioned it once upon a time in Hollywood, which as as he said, you've written about, um, and was it kind of a it was a really cool you know it's it's one of those movies that and uh, that is so about you know about la obviously and about you know the the culture of it and you know i i had just actually just finished watching the queen's gambit and was oh, yeah. completely uh into how they made those places the set design they yeah. most of that was actually filmed a little bit in in, in canada and, and in the rest of it was actually filmed in Germany. They just, yeah. you know, they made the Flamingo Hotel or whatever yeah, in Germany. Yeah. Once upon a time in Hollywood's different because they went to Hollywood and like made it look that. What? How do you do that? How do they go in? What goes into recreating something like that look that they did for that movie? I, I think Quentin Tarantino is, you know, is as we know, um, he he did grow up in in Southern California. So he wanted LA, he wanted his LA, he saw it in his head to be how you see it. Okay. So those memories he had that he recreated on Hollywood is the way he remembers seeing, right? So Peach's Records, the Pussycat Theater may not have been there in 69, but in his mind, growing up here and coming to LA, those are the places that stood out to him. So I think that was very interesting. Also, putting back the places rebuilt where they really were. Mm -hmm. And I to see this, and I'm, I'm so glad I did, that I spent three nights on the street watching the production design put take all the storefronts down and put up 1969. Yeah, that picture, like, that Peaches Records. You know, records and tapes. I love that. And I mean, tapes. And, but the thing is, the detail inside of the windows that we didn't even really get to see in the movie are all posters and a paraphernalia from the 60s, you know, uh, Fillmore posters and Jimi Hendrix posters. It's incredible. The, 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 and then Westwood, you know, going back when Westwood used to be a destination for yes. the movies, right? West, what Westwood was even just 30 years ago when I first moved out here versus what it is now is night and day in terms of just being, you know, not the epicenter of L, of LA culture, but one of the centers, you know, somewhere, somewhere that actually felt like a happening. There was, and so it's different now. There. there was so much street traffic at one point in Westwood Village that cars were not allowed to come in to the village park. Well, it's inter what's interesting about that, and this actually was a question that, that uh, came up uh, on the chat a little earlier from someone who, uh, David Martino, we won't leave the whole thing up because it covers your head. Um, no relation, he points out. Um, but uh, in my experience in LA, a lot of the, the interest in traffic has started to move east. You mentioned Silver Lake earlier. Um, even, you know, and, and further than that towards Echo Park and things like that. And some of that's gentrification and real estate prices and all these other things. But, you know, he brings up the point, you know, I've lived in Fairfax district, um, West Hollywood, and now sort of right on the border, mid city or West Adams, whatever you want to call it. All of that is basically West side. Mm -hmm. um, still, I mean, you, know, you talked about it growing up in Beverly Hills kind of, and you live in West Hollywood, mostly West side stuff starts to move East. Have you seen a little bit more of a breakdown 
of that sort of west side, east side, valley, whatever it might be over time? Or is it really still stratified, do you think, in that way when you kind of think of Los Angeles and what makes these neighborhoods? I grew up when it was still, the whole city was 213 area code. (laughs) (laughs) So I look at it as I've watched certain areas become different zip codes. Interesting. and And different prefixes, different area codes, you know? I mean, I grew up where the valley was right over the hill from me. That was still 213. So it's, I, I, I see it broken up that way now. It's like, oh, you're in a, I know where you are now. I know I know where people are based on their prefix phone number. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, like, I remember when, when 310 got added. That was like, whoa. Like, <laughs> they're adding another area. Like, yeah. at the time, it's like, isn't, you know, at the time, I believe it was 213-818 for a lot of the valley and then 714 for Orange County. Right. It's like, isn't, isn't three area codes enough? Like, that four was, seems gauche. That was all. That was the three I knew. I knew 213 forever. 310 really blew. That, that, that floored me. I'm like, what? It felt like it really opened the floodgates for area codes. Like, then you had your 626s. You, oh, so now, like, here, everybody, now everybody thinks they're a comedian. How many states were there when you grew up? But, you know, if you watch like the, like the movie Swingers or something, you know, yeah. the area code really did se- start to separate Los Angeles to the back. It never was like that when I was first growing up. The valley was 213. It was part of L.A. Then this 818 happens. And then when they go, oh, they're 818, it almost was sort of like a put down, you know, because of the area. Oh, not, not sort of. Definitely. But that's but that's. That's funny because, like, again, like I, you mentioned it before too. Like, there are places in this city, even as a native, and you've lived obviously longer than I have, that you haven't, that you don't know as well, you haven't been to, you maybe only driven through or something like that. There are huge parts, like, you know, especially up for food stuff. You know, every time we have somebody talking about food and they talk about all the great places in the San Gabriel Valley, and I've been to there and I've eaten there a couple times. I've been here 22 years. You'd think I'd been there. 15 times or whatever i haven't it it's such a big city it's hard to get a feel for for everything that's that's there so how 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 do you how do you kind of how do people break that like how do what do you find are the best ways or the best avenues to sort of to to find other parts of the city and experience a different you know even you know vintagey part of of another part of the city. I, mean, I read online. I get suggestions. I see things on Instagram, things I never thought I could ever, oh, I never knew that existed. Like mm-hmm. I said, there's a lot of information coming to us now. You know, the hashtags, vintage LA. Not just my stuff comes up. Their stuff comes up. People are using hashtags to find things. Um, you know, I used to I used to live in a town where it wasn't as trafficy as it is now. And I, it's really, it is kind of, well, it's going to be a long time to get to Malibu. It's going to take a very long time to get to Eagle Rock and Pasadena. And, you know, and I, I really need to 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 do that more often. Is, is there like a great white whale area of L.A. or the surrounding areas? You're like, damn it, I got to learn this area. Like, it's it's intrigued me for like 15 I years. I will never know every area so well. I just won't. And and with the way they're knocking buildings down and putting new buildings, I don't know what street corner I'm on anymore. You know, I don't recognize like La Brea and Santa Monica. You know, thank God the Formosa is still there. And that's, yes. and that's landmarked. And my friend Bobby Green, who did everything in, in, his, in his, God, he's incredible. He's saving LA, you know, by, by coming in there and, and refer, not, he just knows what he's doing, you know, and he finds these 
old vintage gems and turns them in to the best they've ever been. And that's really an accomplishment. Can you can you explain this process? Because when I mentioned I lived in a place in West Hollywood, and when I when my wife and I moved in there, like we can only guarantee you a year because uh, you know the developers coming, they want to knock it down, and they think it's going to be gone in a year. And we're like, okay, it's a gorgeous place, we'll stay here. It was super cheap because they could only they thought it was going to be gone in a year, and so the rent was way below market for this huge apartment that was built in like the nineteen teens or something. Um, and our upstairs neighbor, it turned out, had been working to try to preserve the building for years. We ended up staying there for like six or seven years before she finally lost the battle. Can you explain to people what goes into what the process is for trying to preserve something culturally in the city? I'm, I'm learning it now because I'm trying to do this with Gantana. But from what I realize and what I know is you have to get um, a, a person that understands how to pitch this to like a judge, to like, the, you bring it to the city. So you have to get a lot of documents, how long it's been there, uh, historical documents, number one, find out, and of course, where I come in, the history behind it, who's been mm -hmm. in, you know, that kind of thing. But then it goes to like a committee for a while, and then it has to be, have to pass through. Um, I think Antanas has a good, a good chance of becoming landmark because you see pictures of it. It used to be an old house. And I think that that's a good thing to have when you're landmarking a place, that it's had so many incarnations. It was a home and then it was this pizza joint and, and now it's this place for like going on 60 years. Um, we need to do more of that. I Have me on in a year and I'll tell you if it worked out because I'm all learning more about it. I know it's a long process. I think that the stack of paperwork is like this thick trying to get something. It's insane. It's crazy. And like, I know she was not a popular woman in the development community, the woman who lived above us. Um, but you know, once we saw what she had to do, um, it, it's both, it's a ton of people, like the, the, the barriers to trying to preserve somewhere are, are high. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, oh, go ahead. Andy. Um, yeah. I, there's a question we have from a uh, bus blog. Um, our Tony Pierce, a friend of yeah. ours, um, who's also knows LA very well. Is there a very LA place that still exists that Allison hasn't been in? It seems like she has an LA key. Wow. I, I would like to know if he, he knows one, let me know. <laughs> because so, I, I think I tried to, I, I haven't, you know what? I haven't been to the Prince, believe it or not. This is this incredible vintage bar. I know that's sort of on the way to downtown. I have not been there. Uh, um, there are there are places I haven't been. I'm a little bit of a creature of habit. I go to the same five ten places. <laughs> okay, that that's interesting though. Like, in terms of obviously, this is a passion of yours with preserving and you know recording Los Angeles's history and making sure that people understand it moving forward. Yeah. Is is there, I guess, a separation from you for you in terms of the places that you appreciate for what they are and, and understanding what they mean to the city's history versus the ones that speak to you more on a personal level or the ones that you that you keep gravitating towards? I don't think that I could be as passionate about wanting to preserve something if it didn't have a, a certain emotional impact here. You know, I'm not saying I'm not gonna crusade for a place that deserves it. But having it more of a of a of, a, of an emotional attachment to it always makes it the the fight harder. You know, makes it comes from a bigger place. I think. Well, there is a there's the but that gets to the storytelling element that is so important in trying to in trying to separate, you know, what 
what goes when time passes and things that we kind of think back on as like great, but maybe, you know, when you kind of think about it, it's, it happens all the time with restaurants where you, you look back on and you love the place and you love the atmosphere and you kind of, in your, in the back of your mind, you know, the food was crap, um, yeah. you know, and that by the way is why Dantanis needs to be preserved because the food is really, really good. Um, you know, in addition to all the other stuff, but it's, it's so it is so hard in a city like LA that has so many needs for more housing, for vertical housing, for all these other things to accommodate all these other people. The one um, thing my heart it, it's about, it's yeah. so tricky. Is Dear John's? You mm -hmm. know, Dear John's, the state the steakhouse. It's it's down by Culver City, and I hadn't been there since I was no, I don't know it. Well, I oh, wait. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I know what, exactly what you're talking about. Wait, what is it? It's called Dear John's, and look it up when I'm done. It's, it's, it looks like Columbo's going to walk through the door. Yes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I went there once when I was a kid, did not go back to the beginning of this year, and I walked in and fell in love and went, i got to come here every week. Like, this is going to be my new favorite place. And what was like, I'm always rediscovering, too, and I worry about them, too, but um, COVID hit, and then I haven't been able to go back. Oh, my God, that yeah. place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, just the the whole. I drive by that all the time. Yeah. I've never been in. It's like a little lodge, you know. It's like whatever happens to these little places that look like lodges, you know. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, it, there's that one place uh, in Los Feliz, uh, Bigfoot. I think that's what it's yeah, called. That's amazing. It's, that's that place, and that place has been, I think, redone to be a little bit more. Again, sort of, it's gone a little more hipstery, but like, um, but there's so many little bars like that. I mean, that's another thing that. We, we kind of associate vintage LA, vintage Los Angeles, sort of old Hollywood with a little bit of opulence with a little, but it's not necessarily just that. It's also that dive bar with the, the super dark booths or the place where the, you know, the music acts are or whatever it is that have been around for, a, you know, for a thousand years. And it, it, that's what I, again, what I think is so important about some of the stuff that you, you write about and, and the things that you do and the, the connections to, uh, the the city's history is it really does point to the 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 what the the city really is like once you live here and you understand it's not just actors walking around um I, I i the thing that drives me more nuts than anything is the stereotype that la is just a bunch of lazy prima donnas because it is the exact opposite it's, it is a, as hard working a city as any city in america agree I, I it just it, it, okay. We just had a insane. Just had a question from uh, Jay uh, Kukuru. My apologies if I mispronounced that. Did Sinatra own Dear John's that uh, Allison was just talking about? No, according to uh, Dear John's website, the about section in 1962, Johnny Harlow. I'm not sure who that is. Made the uh, jump from Silver Screen to chef and owner of Dear John's, convinced by his pal Frank Sinatra. He opened the iconic spot just a few uh, ways down from studio Sony Studios in, on Culver Boulevard. It became a watering hole for a Hollywood elite with Sinatra often in the corner playing the piano against the dark brick walls once lined with the portraits of famous John. So Frank Sinatra did not own it, but without Frank Sinatra, perhaps that place wouldn't exist. You know, if... if, if... Everywhere, Frank Sinatra apparently owned everything <laughs> because if it's, a, if it's an old place, or especially or or you feared that he did, so you <laughs> so you kept yourself in line. Sinatra didn't own it, but he still owned it. That's a good way of putting it. Or you know, I mean, 
he could have been an investor or he could have, you know, advocated for, but sometimes he's been in these places once or twice. And it's it was Sinatra's favorite place, but it looked like a place that he would like, you know, yes. it was so darkly lit. He did like those places like Chasen's and Mateo's and um, the Villa Capri, you know, he, those sort of dark lit kind of booths and Chianti bottles on the ceiling and brick walls. Was the chili at Chasen's actually good? It was. Chili is a very controversial. For, for people food. though who aren't aware, you saved the uh, chilies at uh, Chasen's, which we talked about before, a legendary place that eventually ended up closing. You went on a crusade to save the chili. Well, I, okay, I didn't save the chili. I had an idea they should bring back the chili. Okay. They, they had, you know, the, it's Bristol Farms now. It used to be Chasen's. Inside, they have saved. Where is it? Just so people know, where, where is it located? It's on Beverly Boulevard by Doheny. Mm -hmm. Okay. And white building and it's got it looks like an old school building anyway it was chasen's and they saved like four or five booths in there there's actually chasen's booths inside mm -hmm. so it has this chasen's feel to it when you go in i think the owners were very smart to keep those booths i thought wait where's the chili you know we gonna sit in here in the booths and eat the chili and anyway i called the whoever was in charge of bristol's called all the time and then i said bring it back for a little while we can write a story about it and it was, they brought it back for like a year and a half. I think it got expensive to make. Since <laughs> 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 prices, you know, and it was like, ah. uh, but it was fun while it lasted. It was a good, you know, thing for them to do. Um, speaking of, uh, we are just talking about Sinatra and places like that. Uh, your father played Johnny uh, Fontaine in The Godfather, a role that was often rumored to have been based on Frank Sinatra here. Here is a picture of your dad, uh, Al Martino, with uh, Don Corleone, Marlon Brando, uh, for people, who, not that anybody needs to know who Johnny Fontaine is. Um, there's, a, there's a few questions I know I want to ask just as a movie geek and being such a fan of the movie. Th that shoot was famously troubled. Like there were a lot of issues that went into it. The studio ha was dealing with money issues. They did not have a lot of confidence. A lot of people passed on it. The studio didn't want Pacino. You know, Brando had to screen test because he was considered unusable at the time. When your dad is doing this movie, did he ever tell you the sense of what he thought it would be while he was actually doing it? I was I was one years old when they were filming it, but I grew up hearing more about The Godfather than probably any other subject my dad talked about because he did stay in touch with Al Ruddy and, and, and certain people that were involved with the film. But dad was the first, like the first cast member. This is before they even brought Francis Coppola on board. Wow. So it was a, 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 basically a script was going around Hollywood because it was a book. And Phyllis McGuire of the McGuire sisters knew my dad and said, there's this script going around Hollywood and there's a part in it and it's you. Okay, and so my dad had some issues with them all back in the day. But anyway, so <laughs> for another podcast, I'm waiting for some people to die before I can tell those stories. But anyway, oh, we, we we need to make sure we get to Dantanas with you, Allison. It's very important. All those people are gone. Do not too. tell those stories until we have a meal. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, he um part he got the part, but it wasn't just you got the part. You know, there were things that. He had a lot of, there was resistance with the studio, uh, thinking that part would piss off Frank, which it did. Yes, it did. Um, and dad's part was minimized a lot on the set because he was 
really angry, Frank. And it was getting back to the set. And, you know, at that time in, 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 in Hollywood, you just didn't want to piss off Frank. But I, I love that they just kept going about it. I mean, look, they probably, I think Francis wanted to eliminate the Johnny Fonte part completely. And that is what sets the tone for the film. So that when he sees the Don and I need this favor and he says, I'm going to make him an offer you can't refuse is the first time you hear him say that. And then you see what his power is on to the next thing, you know? So it would have been hard to eliminate that part, but he, my dad, as a result, never played Vegas again. Like, wow. 90s. Yeah. Because because he was a famous crooner. He, he was a very famous, successful singer. He was. And if you don't have Las Vegas and you're a singer like my dad, it's like the land of milk and honey for someone like him. If you don't have Vegas, if you don't have Vegas, you know, you have Atlantic City, you have Reno and you know some others, but you have to have Vegas. And he was playing Vegas from the 50s till The Godfather continuously and that it was done. And even Bob Evans said, once you take this part, probably never going to pay Vegas again. Because somebody who has a lot of influence there, as you know who I'm talking about, that it wants to say, he plays his casino, I never play it again. Okay? That's fascinating. So, a blessing for my dad to have that part. Looking back on it, yeah, I'm really glad he's in that movie because the concerts would have come and go. There, there's nothing from it, you know? It, it, but now we have this, I said, Dad, you made one movie. I think you did a good job. <laughs> No, no, I mean, no, if you're going to make one movie, make that one and then just stop. You drop the mic and you leave. But like, I, so, I mean, growing up, like every time you guys were walking out on the street, did people just sort of quote the movie back to you? Is that, is that how this worked? Every time they did, you know, I mean, I think like the nineties when Goodfellas came out and there was like this resurgence for a lot of the mob movies and the Sopranos is when dad got, I think even more fan letters and people wanting to approach him and stuff. But he, my dad toured his whole life. He was never out of work. That did not put my dad out of work. And he mm -hmm. always told Godfather stories on stage, sang this love theme from the Godfather, made it very much part of his of his performance. So he's really proud of it. He he, sa he sang it? Like, we're, I've never heard the words. Do, words exist to that theme? Things in the wedding scene. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. When Ty, you know, uh, Ty Shire's coming in and the, the, fan, the fans are screaming because right. he's like a matinee idol and he does croon and do the. <laughs> I thought you meant the. Da, 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 da. No, I was no, like, no. there's words to that? There are words to that, actually. I've never heard them. Yeah, but the, this was uh, I Have But One Heart. So he would say, he right. would say that. Um, yeah. So uh, it's it was such a part of his life. You know, like a big, big part of his of his life. But he told some great stories because, like, you know, Marlon Brando at the time was, you know, who's this non-actor coming in to play Johnny Fontaine? You know, he's not an actor. Today, you can be anything and and right. move it. You know, but I think right. Dad was really like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna prove myself. You know, or something. I think Dad overheard Marlon say. To Francis, well, who is Al coming on next? Because I think you better get him drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, he took that slap. He took that slap from Marlon Brando. That was one of the reasons I'm going to hit him hard, uh, but to loosen him up. You know, that's because he didn't know that was coming, correct? No, in the script he was supposed to pull his hair, I think. Listen, Which also know, would have hurt. Godfather thing to kind of, it's an exciting <laughs> thing to do this, but I don't think that that was what he was expecting. So many iconic moments, though, in that. It's just, it's just amazing. Um, 
this, you. by the way, for reference for people, it just so we can see it, this is Chasen's um, and the, the building, and this is Bristol Farms. So, yeah. But, you know, it's, it, it is a very, it should be noted, a very nice Bristol Farms. It really is. And when you go inside, you can sit in, in the Chasen's booths at, at some point when we get back to a normal life. And I think that's kind of fun. Um, last question that we want to ask you because we don't want to keep you too long. Um, one of the things that that we, you know, there's so much of this we just finished talking about the Godfather and so much, so much of what we talk about when we talk about vintage Los Angeles is, like you said, connected to entertainment and connected to Hollywood. When you think of sort of your favorite movie that kind of encapsulates the city in a way that that you really love, what movie do you think of? What's your favorite Question. or favorites? I have a list of movies from LA that go on from here to there, but I I tend to like the movie, love the movies that bring back the LA that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. I really love like shampoo. You know, yeah, I love I that that LA is the LA I really remember and um, ten, you know, Dudley Moore and oh my god, you know, I mean that's that's just my favorite. I remember that for other reasons, not so much LA. <laughs> I mean, my God, she was amazing. But there is like there are scenes in that movie that that were very the LA I kind of grew up around. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Modern Romance with Albert Brooks. Yeah, we love that movie. There, the Hamburger Hamlet's featured in there, and Footlocker, and, and you know, just like these time capsules of like. God, I used to go there kind of thing. Does, does that explain why the, the last question I would have, it, in the piece that you wrote for Curbed LA about observing the making of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the, the transformation, you said that you literally wept yeah. while, while seeing this. Is that why just like it, it felt so specific to the LA that you uh, knew? Because yeah. like, like you said, Quentin Tarantino was very specific with the details, but he was willing to fudge a little bit of the years depending yeah. on what spoke to him. And that mm -hmm. didn't bother me at all. I think what I, why I cried is I knew I'd never see this again. <laughs> okay, Because, oh, wow. you know, I knew what I was being transported to was better than like a time machine, but it's in front of me and I can touch it and it's right there. But I also know there's never gonna be a movie that's gonna do this again. Yeah. So it felt like I get teased a little bit but thank God I got to kind of go back and see my Hollywood for three days. Yeah. And so much of it, it like now is done, you know, they'll CGI things in and out. You'll create something like this. What you can do with modern set design is incredible. Um, and to the point of, and Andy and I were talking about this before, as we were sort of prepping for the show, uh, Monique 555 says like swingers for people who are about relatively our age, Andy's 40, Andy was, what are you, 48? Yes. I was going to make it an old person joke. I'm 45. It's not like I'm that young. Um, no, but, you're really not. You know, we're in that era, and I would assume Monique is probably relatively close to our age. Like that's the same kind of thing. Like that that movie is about places that I went and like like types of people that I recognize. And so, so much of of what you appreciate about LA Hollywood is probably shaped by like what you what you identify with in that way, much more so than like LA Confidential, which is gorgeous, but a, of an era that I don't know. Right. And you didn't live through. Yeah. And you did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, not good in there. is a great, a, a movie to me that really is a great nineties LA film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
the Dresden room and the old lava lounge that they filmed in. It's- I, I recognized most of the interiors of those bars. Like that, they were that was like my life that was basically being played out in swingers, like right down to at the time pursuing acting work. Like mm-hmm. it just same age basically as those guys. Like you it it felt in a lot of ways like a just like a roadmap of what I'd be doing on a Saturday night. Answering machines. Yeah, you talked about that earlier in the show. Answering machines, that whole thing. Like that was my nightmare was leaving a message for a girl that I wanted to go out like, but you couldn't hang up because everybody it was still call it was post caller ID. That's right. But you know, so you had to say something. Oh my God, I was bad at voicemail. Answering was, oh so bad. When you leave a message, it'll go, Would you like to re-record that? And you can actually do it. Yes. And nobody will know that you tried five times. And nobody doesn't how many people do you know that check their voicemail? Nobody. Who checks nobody. But who leaves a message on someone's phone? Right. I mean, why why would you do that? Um all right. Um, all right. Well, this this was an enormous amount of fun for us, at least. Hopefully, you enjoyed it too. But we 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 liked it. Um, Allison Martino, founder of Vintage Los Angeles. You can catch her on Spectrum uh, Spectrum News on Wednesdays at nine. Th- thank you so much for for giving. This us was time. great. We really enjoyed this. Thank you. Let's record the next one at Dan Tanis. Oh my God, <laughs> that would be. Again, you realize what you're signing up for. We are not the kind of people who forget this sort of thing. And we we will we will emphasize again. You're the best guest we've ever had. I mean, by a lot. <laughs> like, and you're our best future guest as well. This yes. this was awesome. Thank you very very much. We really appreciate it. Uh, tomorrow tomorrow night we're going to be joined by Travis Rogers, um, talking a lot of Lakers as training camp opens. Uh, the Rams coming off a bit of a difficult period right now. Jared Goff looking yeah, a little a shaky. Uh, Travis covers the Rams for 710 ESPN uh, pre and post game. So get in all that with him. Again, Allison Martino. Follow her on Twitter at Allison Martino. See you all tomorrow. Donkey Nidalan. <laughs>